Let's turn, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 31. As you're doing that, I, I, I do want to uh, remind you to uh, understand there may have been some people that didn't hear uh, my announcement this past weekend. Uh, I'll be going into surgery next Thursday, so a week from tomorrow, I'll be going into surgery for my, uh, for my vocal cords, uh, removal of, uh, of a polyp from, from my vocal cords. So I just ask you all for prayer, and uh, I ask you to continue to support every weekend, every Wednesday, uh, support uh, the church and the pastors as they uh, will be teaching in my place for a couple of weeks until I recuperate and get back a stronger voice and uh, hopefully a better voice, maybe a better one. I won't sound like Mickey Mouse anymore or whatever. Okay, but keep, keep me in prayer. Jeremiah chapter 31, we are now coming to the end of this particular chapter. And um, at first I thought, well, it's just a few verses. shouldn't take long. should never thought that. Jeremiah 31, verse 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, in other words, the ordinances of the sun, moon, and the stars, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord. Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Father, we ask, lead us through your word this evening. Do so by your Spirit. Teach us your truth now. In Jesus' name, amen. Calvary chapels in general teach when it comes to the end times. We teach that Israel is the key and the center, the focal point, the epicenter, as Joel Rosenberg calls it, the epicenter of Bible, process, uh, Bible prophecy. Without Israel, there's no Bible prophecy. Without the state of Israel, and the nation of Israel, and the people of Israel, the Jews, there's no Bible prophecy. You cannot have a valid prophetic position without the state of Israel, and the people of Israel, and the nation of Israel. That being said, one of the most dangerous beliefs and aberrant doctrinal positions being held by many today who claim to be evangelical Christians is one called replacement theology, which has been defined as this, and I quote, the view that the church is the new or true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded Israel as the people of God. 
Another term often found in academic circles for replacement theology is supersecessionism, or I should say supersessionism. Replacement theology has been the fuel, listen to this, replacement theology has been the fuel that has energized medieval anti-Semitism, Eastern European pogroms, the Holocaust, and contemporary disdain for the modern state of Israel. Now one replacement theologian, his name is Kenneth Gentry, writes this. He says, we believe that the international church has superseded for all times, notice, for all times, Israel as the institution for the administration of divine blessing to the world. Another theologian, Walter Kaiser, tells us that replacement theology, and I quote, declared that the church... Abraham's spiritual seed had replaced national Israel in that it had transcended and fulfilled the terms of the covenant given to Israel, which covenant Israel had lost because of disobedience. Now, in response to these definitions, as well as to the truth that uh, replacement theology has been the fuel that has energized the Holocaust and intense anti-Semitic sentiments, Thomas Ice from the Pre-Trib Research Center simply states this. He says, wherever replacement theology has flourished, the Jews have had to run for cover. So even very familiar names in, Christian, uh, in, in evangelical Christianity are connected with this theological extremism. Names such as R.C. Sproul, Michael Horton, and the late Dr. D. James Kennedy. These men are, especially Dr. Sproul and Dr. Kennedy, very renowned speakers, very educated, uh, in many cases uh, very strong in, in good theology and a lot of other areas of theology. But as members of the faculty of Knox Seminary in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, they issued a paper called, and I quote, an open letter to evangelicals and other interested parties, the people of God, the land of Israel, and the impartiality of the gospel. Uh, end quote. In his book, Judgment Day, Dave Hunt points out the crux of this letter. And Dave Hunt writes, This statement, which denied that the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, i.e. the Jews, have any special blessings or place in prophecy, much less any claim upon the land of Israel, was initially signed by 71 prominent evangelical leaders. And this statement declares, and he only points out a couple of sections of this letter. Section 6 says, The inheritance promises that God gave to Abraham do not apply to any particular ethnic group, but to the church of Jesus Christ, the true Israel. And then in section 9 of that same statement, they wrote, The entitlement of any one ethnic or religious group to, the, to territory in the Middle East called the Holy Land cannot be supported by Scripture. In fact, they say, the land promises specific, or the land promises specific to Israel in the Old Testament were fulfilled under Joshua. End quote. Now, what is interesting to me is their disregard 
of very clear passages of Scripture. And their lack of fear of the God who calls himself 203 times the God of Israel. I'm getting a little excited. Just to let you know. Turn to Genesis 17. This is all a part of what we just read in the first three verses of our text tonight. Verses 35 through 37. So it has to begin in Genesis. Here in Genesis 17 verses 7 and 8. God speaking to Abraham says this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations. Stop there. Who can he be talking about except Israel? Okay, let me see some head nodding. You know, I'm not telling you. I'm trying to convince you. I just want you to read what it says. This is God's words to Abraham. He mentions two things. I will establish my covenant between me and you. And he mentions your descendants after you in their generations. That's pretty clear. We're talking ethnic here. And then he says, for an everlasting covenant. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've dealt with the understanding of what everlasting or eternal is. And we did it with one word, forever. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. If God says it's an everlasting covenant, then therefore that covenant is um, lasting and unconditional. Verse 8, also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I, I, I don't know if we can make that any clearer. God made that pretty clear. God spoke clear words to Abraham. A few verses later, when dealing with the fact that God says through Sarah, your wife, this seed will come, Abraham laughs. Because Sarah's only 90 years old or 89 years old, you see. That would have been a laugh. Therefore they named their son Isaac, which means laughter. But in verse 19 it says, God said, no, Sarah, your wife. Because Abraham was thinking maybe it's Ishmael. No, not Ishmael. Ishmael, we'll have to talk about Ishmael another time. But he says, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Laughter, Isaac. And then he says, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. So I think we're seeing a pattern by God. God is establishing the pattern, not me, not anyone, but God himself. In Deuteronomy 32, verses 9 and 10. For the Lord's portion is his people. Now we hear the name Jacob. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Do you know what that literally means? It means Israel is the place of his inheritance. Why? Because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found them in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him, 
as the apple of his eye. David would later on, in understanding the history of the covenant and the everlasting covenant and the promises that God has given to Israel, would say in 1 Chronicles 16, which would be echoed later on in Psalm 105, but in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 15 through 18, David writes, Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. Anytime you see a thousand generations, it's saying, listen, don't even count them. It just means forever. The covenant which he made with whom? With Abraham and his oath to Isaac, which we've already read and seen, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. Every verse we have read has contradicted the statements made by the replacement theologians. And they said, but Scripture says differently. I don't know about you, but I think it was pretty clear what we read. And for these replacement theologian, uh, or these replacement theology proponents to say that the land promises were fulfilled under Joshua, it would be funny if it weren't so sad. Because the land was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their physical descendants by an everlasting covenant. And so possession of the land couldn't have been fulfilled under Joshua since he died at the age of 110. That's a far cry from everlasting. How do you fulfill an everlasting covenant and you're not everlasting with it? And then consider... Consider that none of the prophecies could have been fulfilled under Joshua, that the Messiah would come to that land as a man to redeem Israel, that Israel would reject him and crucify him in that same land, that after returning to that land to be scattered worldwide, Israel would be hated and finally attacked by all nations in the end times, and Messiah intervened to rescue his people. To believe contrary to these scriptural truths is the height of prejudice. It is not biblical. It is prejudice. And what is even more painful to believe is that these people will line up against what they consider as Israeli occupation and imperialism while being sympathetic to the Palestinians' plight not considering for a moment that the, uh, the fact that the Arabs suffering today in, the, in those regions are only pawn, uh, pawns of the radical Islamic nations and factions, Hamas and Hezbollah in particular. That's happening today. And by the way, let's look at the numbers. I believe it's about 7 million people in Israel that are Jews. About 7 million and we're talking about close to 90 million Arabs in the Arab or Muslim states around it. I'd say that Israel is not really an imperialistic nation. And they have said that they are. Now, I would like to challenge them to go there and see the reality. Go up north to where the people in Israel are being or were for a time being blasted by rockets and missiles on a daily basis with many of their people killed 
children included. People are not understanding, and it's sad that some quote-unquote evangelical Christians are not getting the point. Israel is fighting for their existence. They're not fighting for more land. God already gave them the land. Besides, the land that they have is a mere uh, percentage of what God has really given them. When When Jesus comes again, he'll give them all the land that he promised them. But right now, that little precious piece of land that's about the size of New Jersey, that all they're doing is trying to exist. From the very first day that they became the state of Israel in May of 1948, they have been fighting for that existence. Why are they still here? If there were less than 7 million back then, and the Arab nations were at 80 million coming against them, how do they still exist? Because of the hand of their God. That's why. Well, this brings us back to the next article in the Constitution of the New Covenant that the Lord was making for His people. Last week, as we looked at uh, verses 31 through 34, we were looking at the uh, preamble to the Constitution of their Declaration of Dependence Upon God, you know. So we're kind of tying it into the fact that these are statements of, or articles of their constitution of the new covenant that God is giving them. And so as we enter into chapter uh, uh, 31, verse 35, this is just another article. It, uh, it, it goes, it seems like in a different direction, but it's very important to understand why this is being said. Thus says the Lord, verse 35, Who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord of the armies of heaven is His name. If those ordinances, the sun, the moon, the stars, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if if, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So simply stated, in these three verses here, simply stated, if a distinct nation known as Israel, which is comprised of the physical descendants of the Israel that was established in what we know as the promised land under Joshua, if that Israel no longer exists, then there is no sun in the heavens. You understand that? If Israel doesn't exist, there's no sun in the heavens. I don't know about you, but I saw a sun this morning. Well, I didn't see it directly because they say, don't look into the sun or you'll get your eyes burned, you know. But I knew the sun was there. Didn't have to put my headlights on this morning on the way to the dentist. Sun was there. That means Israel's still here. Tonight, if there aren't any clouds in the sky, we might see a, a star or two. Might even see the moon. If you see them, Israel's still here. You get the picture. It's a great picture, isn't it?
If Israel doesn't exist, then there is no sun in the heavens, the stars have all disappeared, the whole natural order of all that does exist is destroyed. And still, and still today, we hear Muslims and atheists, some Jews, because there are certain Jews that, that don't believe in the state of Israel. And it's a funny thing, it's some, some of them are Orthodox Jews. And they don't, they don't believe in, they, you know, it's interesting, they don't believe in the state of Israel that it should exist, but they live there. But, you know, so you don't know where you live, but you're there. Uh, anyway, you still hear Muslims, atheists, some Jews, and some professing Christians, as I've just mentioned, say that today's Israel has no prophetic significance or divine legitimacy or authenticity. But to underscore Israel's permanence because of this new covenant, the Lord compares her existence to that of the heavens and the earth. Again, uh, let's go back to Genesis, if you will, Genesis chapter 1, and look at verses 14 through 19. This is God's establishing these ordinances. God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So he, as He appointed, you see, as He appointed the sun, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the sun to shine by day, <coughs> and the moon and the stars to shine by night. So He appointed Israel to be His chosen nation. With this in mind, I want you to consider this. And if you take anything home with you, take this home. The, pow the same power, the same power that God displayed in creating the universe is the same power He exercises in preserving Israel as a nation. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I mean, that's an awesome thought. The same power that God displayed in creating the universe is the same power He exercises in preserving Israel as a nation. We know that throughout history, nation upon nation and people upon people have tried to destroy Israel completely, but none of them, not one, has succeeded. In fact, none ever will. And I want you to think about that heart I mentioned on Sunday about that heart of, of Paul's for his people. Think about this for a moment. In Romans 9, verses 3 through 5, I read 1 through 5 on Sunday, but I'll just read 3 through 5. Because this is the heart of Paul for Israel. He says, for I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. In other words, I myself, uh, he says, I could wish that I myself were condemned from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, that they would come to know Christ. If it took me being a curse for them to come, I'd gladly do it. 
When you look at Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, the other day I read verse 1, I'll read verses 1 through 4 now. He says, But brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I want you to hold that thought for just a moment. His prayer and his desire and prayer to God was that Israel might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end or the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In the next chapter, Romans chapter 11, by the way, if you study Romans 9 through 11, you realize this is Paul's testament for Israel in the theology of the New Testament. And he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? God forbid, certainly not. Has God cast away his people? Paul says he hasn't. Now I'm going to believe what God says in his own word, and I'm going to believe Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write about this even 2,000 years ago, or almost 2,000 years ago, to tell us, hey, has God cast away his people? God forbid. He says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and tore down your altars. And I alone alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God is saving his people because he says he's going to. In Romans 11, verses 11 through 16, Paul goes on to say, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God came to His people. God called His people. God loved His people first. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that he's, God is saying to them, I, I loved you not because you're greater in number or anything else like that. I loved you because I loved you. I chose you because I loved you. And here Paul, uh, Paul is saying, he provokes them to jealousy and says salvation has now come to the Gentiles. To the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Now if their, riches, uh, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If even in their fall we are brought to Christ, how much more their return to God? Because he goes on to say, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And by the way, doesn't it tell us or teach us in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 37 that the dead bones shall arise and God will put upon them sinew and flesh, muscle and flesh, and they'll be alive again? Why? He's saying Israel will be alive again. Verse 15, for if they being cast away is the reconciling of the world, will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. 
So this is the regard that Paul has for his people. That at the end, or not near the end of chapter 11, he says in verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins, pointing to the return of Jesus Christ, a Messiah who came the first time for them, but they rejected him, coming again so that they can see him whom they pierced and weep, for they will realize who their Messiah really is, which is Jesus Christ. So now, after all of that, there's a clear distinction then that Paul is making between Israel and the church. And that's the point of reading those uh, verses in Romans 9 through 11. Paul makes a distinction between Israel and the church. Paul was willing to go, as we read earlier, he was willing to go to hell for an eternity. If that would bring about the salvation of his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites. But we know that one must be saved to be in the church, right? We know that. One must be saved to be in the church. And what is the church made up of? Well, the church is made up of Spanish people and Mexicans and Germans and French and Australians and Japanese people and many, many, many other nations, many other races of people uh, who are saved, right? They're saved from all the lands. The, 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 the gospel has, has reached almost all of the, the known uh, world which we can see from space now and so you know the gospel has gone all around the world and so made up of all of these various different nations well Paul said that his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved what is that saying Paul was declaring that Israel wasn't saved and so how could any Israel any Israel be the church That just comes from the Word of God, you see. If we'll just read the Word of God and believe what God says about Him and His people whom He has chosen, we'll realize there is an Israel and there is a church. Now, we are also told in the book of Romans that as the church... It isn't Israel that is grafted into us. It is us, the Gentiles, grafted into Israel. Because God hasn't forgotten them. He's brought us into that covenant with them. Which is the new covenant, by the way. Which is we're coming back to in just a moment. So let's consider now verse 37 because verse 37 talks about measuring the world let's consider measuring the universe because we talked about the sun moon and stars if there's no sun no moon and stars then there's no israel but if you've seen the sun moon and stars there's an israel still but now let's consider measuring the universe is that even possible today with all of the powerful high-tech telescopes which vision reaches as far as they they ever uh, have gone and yet every time they, they find another section of, 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 of space or universe that, that they seem to have, have, have gotten deeper in, they, they realize that there's something still more beyond that. They haven't found an end to it, you know. I, I mean, does anyone know how big the universe is? 
No, it's immeasurable. Because God is immeasurable. And God is greater than His universe. So how, greater, how great is God then? I mean, it may be that the world thinks there has to be an end somewhere. Like the fake wall that Truman Burbank runs into near the end of that movie, The Truman Show. Anybody seen The Truman Show lately? It's about a 10-year-old film already, I think. But, you know, there, there's this guy going on in this boat. He's living in this, this, this universe of his own, and then it comes to an end. There's a wall painted with a sky and a sea. Sometimes I think that's the way the world is. That wall, by the way, symbolizes the end of his make-believe universe, while another waited in a real one with its own end. But with a God who is bigger and greater and mightier than his endless universe, he created by speaking into existence, who could ever know its end? The idea is no one can. I don't care how big a telescope you build, you'll never see the end of what God has created. And then in Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 18, even there it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span. This is a span, by the way, from here to here. That's just my span. All right, let me see your spans. Everybody, show me your span. Okay. Not very much. We could actually measure all those if we put them all together like this. We could measure it. But with God, you can't even measure this span of His hand. It's greater than the universe. Who has calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as His counselor has taught Him? Well, we all know the answer to these questions. No one has. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. One of these days when you have a bucket, you're, maybe you're going to mop your floor or something and you have a bucket one of these days just take a drop and drop it in a bucket and think the nations to the Lord is like a drop in a bucket can't measure it and the the nation itself is nothing to God behold the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as a small dust on the scales in other words, what's left after you measure something? You know, sometimes there's a little residue. So that's, that's what the nations are, a little drop or, or speck. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its be sufficient for a burnt offering. And there, there, in other words, in Lebanon, you know, the, the, the cedars of Lebanon, very strong, big tree. He says there's not enough of them to burn an offering for the Lord. That's how great God is. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? What about the other phrase dealing with the the, the foundations of the earth? You know, who's been able to measure that? Well, it's a little hard to do it with all the oceans we've got. 
So the, the idea is nobody's going to really measure it. We can use all kinds of machinery and sonar and whatnot, but, but eventually, you know, it just can't get to the depth of the sea as God knows it to be. Even the depths of the sea have not been measured accurately by man, and so with that in mind, the seed of Israel will never be cast off for what they have done. Notice what it said there in verse 37. I will, if heaven above can be measured, if the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I'll cast, I'll cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done. So what does it tell us? The seed of Israel will never be cast off, even for what they've done. Because God has inserted something into the whole plan that none of us ever expected. you know what that was? Mercy and grace. Mercy is keeping us from what we deserve. Grace is giving us a gift that we don't deserve. Mercy is keeping us from what we do deserve. Grace is giving us something we don't deserve. And that brings us back to the new covenant. There is to be a new and living way for God's people, the Bible teaches us. Jesus himself, and Paul is the one who, uh, you know, we can see it in the Gospels, but Paul also mentions it in 1 Corinthians 11.25 when he speaks of the, of the Passover supper, and he says in the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But he mentions the new covenant in my blood. It is the blood of Messiah. That is different than the blood of bulls and goats that they were to sacrifice once every year. If they did it right and if they did it with the right heart, then they'd be forgiven. But then the next year they'd have to do it again. But with the blood of the new covenant, it would be shed once and for all for the sins of those who believe. And so he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Let's do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, Paul again deals with this particular issue of the covenant and the covenants in, in, uh, in reference to the old and the new. Because he says, for if that first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What is that? That's verse 31 of our, uh, Jeremiah 31. We studied this last week. And then it says, uh, Not according to the covenant, verse 9, that, that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now look at verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor. Uh, it's, it's last week's text. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And then in verse 13 he says, in that he says this. In that he says, a new covenant. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete 
and growing old is ready to vanish away. So now we're coming to a greater understanding of the new covenant and its distinction from the old covenant. And in chapter 9 of Hebrews, Paul goes on to say, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. By the way, who is he speaking to? The Hebrews. The Jewish believers. He says to them, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and goats, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Notice, not a yearly redemption, an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance everlasting inheritance jump over to Hebrews 13 and in verses 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant. You see, it brings us back to the first promise God made. But it is the covenant that God keeps, not the one that we fail to keep. Or that the Jews failed to keep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Make you complete in every good work to do his will. Working in you what is well pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lastly. The constitution of the new covenant deals with the establishment of the new city. For his people. A new city with an old name. Jerusalem. I shouldn't call it an old name. It's actually an eternal name. Because it's an eternal city. It is the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, The city of peace. Peace hasn't come there yet, but it's coming. There'll be a false peace before there is true peace. But peace is coming. Verse 38 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that the city shall be built. For the Lord, from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the surveyor's line, which is an interesting thing, if you can write this down, look this up tonight, Zechariah 2, verses 1 and 2. Look that up tonight and look at how it, it coincides with this passage about the measuring, a surveyor's measuring of the city. The surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Garev. Then it shall turn toward Goath, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron 
to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked up or thrown down any more forever. So he's kind of given us a quick overview of this whole city, you know, built from the Lord of the Tower of Hananel to the corner gate. Uh, it's kind of like going northeast, uh, north to northeast, to east, south, and all the way around back around to the west. But the Lord is saying, what he's saying is that one day, all the places that they had used for idolatry, all the places where they're sacrificing their children to the God of Molech, all those places of defilement will be holy to God. No longer will they be an abomination to God. For God will transform those wicked places to bring Him glory. What does that remind you of? Just the thing that God has done with you and me. Hope I'm not alone in this. <laughs> Did God transform us from wicked to his glory? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. In the future, Jerusalem would undergo rebuilding for the Lord. It would be built larger than it had been built before his destruction by the Babylonians. The Tower of Hananel was the northeast corner of the city. You can read this in Nehemiah 3 and, and in chapter 12 as well, Zechariah 14. It goes from the northeast corner of the city and the corner gate. Seems to have been on the northwest side of Jerusalem. So it's actually going this way. Um, the locations of the hill Garv and Goath are unknown, but they may have been on the west side since this would fill out the picture of the whole city. So the whole new and large city would be devoted to the Lord God and it would never experience invasion or overthrow again. Well, we know that's not now. So we know that it's a Jerusalem to come. The Valley of the Dead Bodies prefer, uh, probably refers to the Hinnom Valley to Jerusalem's south and west. The brook Kidron lay on Jerusalem's east side and the horse gate stood at the southeast corner of the city wall and it led out to the Kidron Valley. What had formerly been unclean land, in other words, full of dead bodies, would be holy then to the Lord. The city's change in character would be even more remarkable than its change in size. So this is, this is the last article, at least in this chapter, of the, of the constitution of the new covenant. For Israel, It is to Israel first, and yet the promises to us, as we read in Hebrews, were, were also for the church. I mean, you know, spiritually we, we benefit in all of those blessings. Spiritually we benefit in everything. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that everything we learn in the Old Testament is for our good. Everything that happened to the, uh, to the Jews in, in, in the Old Testament is for our learning. But the covenant itself is about Jesus Christ. That is why he says the blood of a new covenant. It is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. What was missed by the Jews when Jesus was here? John chapter 1 verse 11 says he came unto his own and his own received him not. They rejected him because of that rejection both Jew and Gentile, in particular the Romans, both Jew and Gentile, put Jesus on the cross. In effect, our sins put Jesus on the cross. 
But Jesus didn't go there fighting. He went there to fight for us. He went there to die for us. He went there to shed His blood for us. That's the new covenant for both Jew and Gentile. And that is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1 about the gospel is being the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so we come to the end of chapter 31. And my last question to you all tonight is, is God finished with Israel? Well, I believe that we have let the Scriptures, we have let the Holy Word of God answer that question. And all I can say is, Amen and Amen. Shall we pray?